Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise reading to you the Monday, August 21st, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, a high of 82 with a low of 64. Humid with intervals of clouds and sun. And tonight, a thunder shower and spots early, partly cloudy. On Tuesday, a high of 74 with a low of 57, mostly sunny. On Wednesday, a high of 73 with a low of 59, pleasant with plenty of sunshine. On Thursday, sunny to partly cloudy and nice, a high of 74 with a low of 64. On Friday, cloudy, breezy in the afternoon, a high of 74 with a low of 67. The sun will rise today at 5.55 a.m., set at 7.33 p.m. for a total of 13 hours and 38 minutes of daylight. In the lottery, the numbers game dated Sunday, August 20th, midday, 7842. Midday again, 7842. The numbers game evening, 0410. Evening again, 0410. Mass cash for Sunday, August 20th, 10, 11, 14, 17, 21. Again, 10, 11, 14, 17, 21. And Lucky for Life, dated Sunday, August 20th. 2, 18, 34, 41, 47. With a lucky ball of 5. Again, 2, 18, 34, 41, 47. With a lucky ball of 5. On the front page, it's a happy place. Volunteers help Falmouth Road Race run smoothly by Zane Razik, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Falmouth. Just after 9 a.m., the lost and found booth at the close of the iconic Falmouth Road Race was nearly empty. But within hours, as nearly 10,000 runners navigated their way through the seven-mile seaside course, the booth would become a repository for lots of items dropped along the route. Cell phones, keys, driver's licenses, eyeglasses. Manning the booth were Annette Messina and her husband Joe Messina. After more than a decade of volunteering at the race, Annette said they have learned how to help. Once something is turned into them, it's placed into a small white envelope and labeled with the person's name, if known. They're so excited, said Annette Messina. One someone retrieves their missing items you lose your license forget it it's a scary thing if you have what they lost it's a good feeling for them and for us volunteers recognized for more than a decade of help the Waltham couple once owned a summer house in Falmouth where their daughter now lives Joe ran the race himself for 15 years before before joining his wife and lending a hand on Sunday, they were among the throngs of volunteers fueling the machine of the annual ASICS Falmouth Road Race, which came back for its 51st running. The couple was rewarded with the Carroll Service Award, which is named in honor of former co-directors John and Lucia Carroll. 
It feels good, said Joe on Sunday, especially for the ones that aren't in the best shape. It's really challenging. It's nice to participate and support them. Annette estimated she's volunteered for about 13 or 14 years. Throughout the weekend, they helped distribute numbers to runners at the high school. Once race day, they were up and around 6.30 a.m. helping to prepare. Highlights of the race. Runners pounded the course. One runner donned a costume inspired by the character Ken from the Barbie movie, while another was dressed as a lobster. The route runs from Woods Hole by the Great Harbor, then heads southeast toward Nopska Lighthouse. From there, it's a northeastern journey along the ocean, passing oyster and salt ponds. The final two miles make runners ar- take runners around Falmouth Harbor. The finish line is at Falmouth Heights Ballpark. On Sunday, runners Helen O'Brien and Emily Sisson made their Falmouth Road Race debut. O'Brien won the Boston Marathon in April, the Boston Athletic Association 10K, and runner-up in the MasterCard New York Mini 10K, and won the Beach to Beacon 10K in Maine. Sisson holds the American record for the Bank of America Chicago Marathon, and she also set the American record in the Half Marathon. Since then, that has been broken, and won the USA Track and Field 15-kilometer title for the third consecutive year. Proceeds from the race support youth athletic programs in Falmouth and other nonprofit community groups, according to the race website. Avid Falmouth Road Race fan competes for his 45th time. Among the runners was Brian Baker, 61, an avid runner who completed the race for his 45th consecutive time on Sunday in 1978. His high school friend showed him a photo of the Falmouth race on the cover of Runner's World magazine. Done on a lark, Baker signed up for the race, completing the course the following year. He fell in love with the race and has done it every year since. Since then, the race has shaped his life. He's vacationed in Falmouth and had his honeymoon here, too. Twelve years ago, Baker, who was predominantly a New York State resident, bought his vacation home in town. And it was all because of that first spark, said Baker. He even has a room in his New York house dubbed the Falmouth Room, where he keeps every single race t-shirt and number bib, every race magazine, every mug from every year he's run, and every medal that's been given out. The room is also stocked with memorabilia from the race, including keychains, bags, and posters. My first year was the race's sixth year. It was established by that point, but watching how it has grown since then is just mind-boggling. We just enjoy it. Annette Messina said the people is what brings them as volunteers back each year. We just enjoy it. They are just so much fun to be around, just good people, and the people we meet, the people coming in to get their numbers, it's a happy place. In the Cape and Islands section, New Life at Old Bank. Building may become much-needed mixed-income housing. By Zane Razig, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Hyannis. A new life may be on the horizon for the long-deserted TD Bank location at 307 Main Street. Boston developer Wynn Development wants to transform the former bank into 120 mixed-income apartments, dubbed Harbor View. Ramey Schneider, senior project manager at Wynn Development, said the project will inject new life into downtown by adding housing for year-round residents who will work and shop in the community. She said neighbors, mainly businesses, as the 1.8-acre property is at the gateway of the downtown Hyannis Main Street corridor, have warmly welcomed the proposal after a July community meeting. 
They're excited to see additional feet on the street, Schneider said. The project is still early in the public hearing process. The next step, when development will go before the Hyannis Main Street Waterfront Historic District Commission on August 30th to seek a certificate for demolition and a certificate of appropriateness for the proposed project. The team also went in front of the Site Plan Review Committee on Tuesday for an informal review. What will the Harborview project look like? Plans call for demolishing the entire existing two-story brick building, which also includes two old drive-through lanes on the southeastern side. Replacing it will be a four-story, multi-family building containing a mix of studios and one, two, and three-bedroom apartments, according to a project narrative filed with the Hyannis Main Street Waterfront Historic District Commission. The design will pay homage to the maritime aesthetic and historic character of the village. The roof line will be a mix of gable, cross gable, and shed roofs to provide a variety of architectural interest along the street frontage. The facade will be broken up to feel like a multiple buildings with projecting bay elements and recesses strategically placed to undulate along the main pedestrian route. The first floor is proposed to include amenity space and residential back-off house space, while the fourth floor will be treated as an attic story along Main Street and Old Colony Road to minimize the perceived height of the building and match the roof treatment of adjacent buildings. In the rear will be 120 parking spaces with some covered under the building. The property currently includes 74 spaces. In order to meet Passive House Certification, Harborview will be designed to be an airtight envelope that creates stores and uses its own energy with triple-glazed UPVC windows, all-electric HVAC systems, low-flow plumbing fixtures, and electric vehicle parking spaces for residents. All 120 units will count toward Barnstable's subsidized housing inventory. When development has committed 25% of the apartments for those making at or below 80% area medium income for 40 years. This means all 120 units will count toward the town's subsidized housing inventory, said Schneider. The inclusion of these new units will nudge Barnstable's subsidized housing inventory from 7.2% to 8.3%, according to December 2020 census data. Schneider also said a portion of the building will be for those making 60% AMI or less for one person and other units will be set aside for workforce housing aimed at those making 80 to 120% AMI. That could be a firefighter, that could be someone making 75000 a year, who is not making enough to afford a market rate unit, she said. Some apartments will also be unrestricted market rate. Architect current owner, the Massachusetts Historical Commission lists the existing building as a historic building constructed in 1924. The building was the third spot for the Cape Cod Bank and Trust. Its unconventional shape is thanks to additions to the building over the years since the bank opened 99 years ago. The Massachusetts Historical Commission form states the building has no architectural style and has been altered beyond recognition. The property is equipped with existing sewer and water services off Main Street and gas service off Old Colony Road and also has a generator, outside light poles, and stormwater drainage in the paved areas. Electric services connect from overhead wires on Old Colony Road to an above-ground transformer, according to the narrative provided to the Hyannis Main Street Waterfront Historic District Commission. 
The current property owner is 307 Main Street Nominee Trust and is under site control by Wynn Development through its trustee 307 Main Street Nominee Trust authorized Wynn Development to submit its applications. According to plan documents, Icon Architect of Boston will serve as the architect. The next Cape and Islands story. The first step is always the hardest by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times USA Today Network. There is an oft-quoted saying, a journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step. It's attributed to Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, believed to have lived in the 6th century BC. Back then, I'm sure just about all journeys were made on foot. Today's daily photojournalism forays technically start with the first step, waking up, but the trusty photo vehicle is enlisted for each day's journey. Driving Cape Cod is challenging any time of year for the slow-moving motorist always on the lookout for an interesting photograph. It can be downright maddening. I wouldn't want to walk to each assignment, but when several assignments stack up in Hyannis, I park at the Main Street office and walk. This removes the biggest challenge any driver faces, where to park. If you are carrying a camera, the art of seeing can be practiced to a high level on foot. But most days, the travel pace is at least 30 miles per hour. If something catches my eye, it is likely in the rearview mirror by the time I can pull over and backtrack to the subject. This abrupt technique defeats just about any chance of a subtle approach, scaring away wildlife and humans alike. Days sometimes turn into weeks when looking for interesting photos that turn out to be failures. When all seems lost on the busiest of days, photo ops pop up everywhere. If only I was walking. Last Tuesday, driving in West Yarmouth, a flock of male turkeys all puffed up and looked for action, circled around a bird bath drinking. Traffic was heavy and a string of tailgaters were already ag aggrieved about my speed. By the time I could double check back, the turkey boys were done with their libations and had moved back to the pecking at the grass. Traveling the home stretch back to Route 6A, another moment of nature was playing out. It looked like it could end in a fatality. What first appeared to be a leaf skittering across the road turned out to be a young snapping turtle taking determined steps across the highway. Fast-moving traffic didn't see the animal, just past the center line and heading north. Again, traffic on my tail prevented a sudden stop. On the busy road, it took almost five minutes to reverse direction and find a place to safely pull over. The turtle had miraculously crossed the busy state highway. It was reluctant to pose. I backed away and stood guard until it made it into the woods. It was a brave single step that started the snapper's purposeful journey, an inspiration for all who navigate Cape Cod's highways in the summer. Included with the article is a picture of the snapping turtle, and it reads, A young snapping turtle takes a quick rest after a harrowing morning rush hour crossing of Route 6A in Barnstable before it safely made its way into the nearby woods. Photo by Steve Heelslip. The next Cape and Islands story. From Fire, Tribe Forges a Traditional Indigenous Canoe by Rachel Devaney, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Plymouth. As rain poured down at the site of the Mishun Burn, Taylor Harding Stasis, a member of the Herring Pond Wampanoag Tribe, sighed in relief. The brief shower was a welcome respite as waves of heat emitted from the slow, simmering flame burning through a 20-foot piece of white pine. The log, she said, will eventually become 
a machine, a traditional indigenous canoe that can hold five to six people. Traditionally, our boats are our lifelines. You need a boat to go to fish, to whale, she said. For us to be able to do this and eventually sail on your waters is bigger than us because it's also about our ancestors who died before us so we could still have this. For three years, Harding Stasis said she's been advocating for the tribe to host a Mishun burn. The burn, which commenced Friday, has become a way to bring tribal members and sister tribes together. Over time, she said, federal recognition processes have created some separation between Wampanoag tribal bands. Throughout this burn, we want to remember that we come from the same seed. It isn't the government, the politics, or the grants that keep us together. It's cultural practices like this. Melissa Ferretti, chairwoman of the tribe, said the burn is one way toward tribal unification. Public invited to Herring Pond, Wampanoag, Mishun. Everyone should feel welcome. We want to bring our people closer together and conduct an event that isn't business-related for once. The burn is also open to non-native community members, said Ferretti, and the tribe will hold public visiting hours from noon to 4 p.m. daily at 173 Herring Pond Road. We want to also educate people on our traditional ways, she said. It's important for everyone to have the opportunity to do that. Machoon burning begins in a forest. For Jennifer Salt, a tribe member, the Machoon burn journey began in a wildlife sanctuary on Monday in where. Nipmuc Territory, as Salt called it. Along the Harding Stasis, Salt met with Andre Strong Bearheart Gaines, a member of the Nipmuc tribe and co-founder of No Loose Braids, a nip-muscled organization that works to bring eastern woodland tribal communities together through the cultural revitalization of traditional practices. With the group found the white pine that would be used for the herring pond burn, the first thing Salt and Harding Stasis did was give an offering at the base of the tree. Salt, a firekeeper for her tribe, brought tobacco and ancestral symbolic offerings such as primrose flowers, but she also brought ash and wood burn from fires that have previously been held for tribal members who have died. We keep the ashes and the word burn from each fire, and during special times I use it as an offering, she said. So I had all of our ancestors with us that have passed on. The different families were with us. Harding Stasis also sang a song as tribal members walked around the tree. A Stubborn Pine Tree As Gaines and others began to work to fell the tree, Salt said the particular white pine was stubborn. It took 45 minutes, she said, for the tree to come down. They put one round of wedges in, and it didn't move. They put more wedges in, and it still didn't move, she said. Then they started cutting logs and hammering the logs in, and still it wouldn't fall. Finally, they got another big log, and they wedged that and kept hammering and hammering, and it went down. It was then that Salt and Harding Stasis decided to hold the burn in honor of tribal elder Hazel Currents. She is one of our toughest elders, and she has that power. She, like the tree, never goes down easy, said Salt. She was going to make us work for it. From moment to moment during the White Pines Harvest, Harding Stasis said she was inspired by the intertribal collaboration. The Wampanoag tribe is a matrilineal society, so the burn in many ways has become a female-led initiative. We had men cut the tree down because they are life takers and we are life givers, but as all of us work together, we created something that will outlast us all. Sailing the Wampanoag Machoon in Local Waters 
When the burn is complete, tribal members will use the machine to move around local waters surrounding three parcels of land that were set aside for the Herring Pond Wampanoag tribe in 1675, said Ferretti. The lot we are on, Meeting House Lot, was 200 acres at one time. The great lot across the pond was 2,600 acres, and the Herring River lot that borders South Plymouth and Borndale was 400 acres. The meeting house lot where the machine is burning has been held in tribal hands since 1675, said Brenda Weston, a tribal elder. Maria Ellis, Weston's descendant, and owned the property as part of the lot that was given to her family. This is the first time we've done this, the machine burn here. It's very exciting. As the machine continues to burn, Ferretti is looking forward to spreading the spark of the fire surrounding tribal communities. We wanted to show our community that we can do this, she said. This is a living history and so important to be in kinship within the bigger Wampanoag Nation. Tropical Storm Hillary Drenches California Makes Landfall Along Mexico's Baja Coast by Damien Dovergains and Jordi Libriga, The Associated Press, San Diego Deadly floodwaters inundated streets across Mexico and arid Baja California on Sunday as Tropical Storm Hillary moved ashore carrying torrential rain into Southern California and concerns mounted that flash floods would damage places as far north as Idaho that really get, rarely get such heavy rain. Forecasters said Hillary was the first tropical storm to hit Southern California in 84 years, bringing the potential for flash floods, mudslides, isolated tornadoes, high winds, and power outages. Hillary made landfall along the Mexican coast in a sparsely populated area, about 150 miles south of Ensenada. On a path to hit mudslide-prone Tijuana Sunday evening, threatening the improvised homes that cling to hillsides just south of the U.S. border. At least 9 million people were under flash flood warnings as heavy rain fell across normally sunny Southern California ahead of the brunt of the storm. Desert areas were especially susceptible to flooding, along with hillsides with burn scars from wildfires, forecasters warned. Mud spilled onto highways, water overwhelmed drainage systems, and tree branches fell in places from San Diego to Los Angeles. The Weather Service said tornadoes were possible Sunday afternoon in eastern San Diego County. Other western states could be hit with once-in-a-century rains with a good chance Hillary would break all-time records and the wettest known tropical cyclone to douse Nevada, Oregon, and Idaho. Hillary was expected to remain a tropical storm into central Nevada early Monday before dissipating. By Sunday afternoon, Hillary was just south-southeast of San Diego, the National Hurricane Center reported. Hillary had a maximum sustained wind of 65 miles per hour and was moving northwest at 25 miles per hour. Hurricane Center Director Michael Brennan said that while Hillary had weakened from a Category 4 hurricane, it's the water, not the wind, that people should watch out for most. He said some areas could get the amount of rain in hours that they typically get in an entire year. You do not want to be out driving around trying to cross flooded roads on vehicle or on foot, Brennan added during a briefing from Miami rainfall flooding has been the biggest killer in tropical storms and hurricanes in the U.S. in the past 10 years, and you don't want to become a statistic. Hillary is just the latest major climate disaster to wreak havoc across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Hawaii's 
island of Maui is still reeling from last week's blaze that killed over 100 people and ravaged the historic town of Lahaina, making it the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. Firefighters in Canada are battling blazes during the nation's worst fire season on record. The Mexican cities of Ensenada and Tijuana, directly in the storm's path, closed all beaches and opened a half dozen shelters at sports complexes and government offices. One person drowned Saturday in the Mexican town of Santa Rosalina when a vehicle was swept away in an overflowing stream. Rescue workers savaged four people, said Edith Aguilar, the mayor of Mulledge Township. Brennan said rainfall could reach between three and six inches in many areas. Forecasters warned it could dump up to 10 inches, a year's worth of rain, in some isolated areas. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency. The Federal Emergency Management Agency said it has officials inside California's Emergency Preparedness Office and teams on standby with food, water, and other help. In coastal Carlsbad, just north of San Diego, 19-year-old Jack Johnson and his friends kept an eye on the waves determined to surf them at some point Sunday. It's really choppy out there, not really surfable yet, but I think we can find a good break somewhere later, Johnson said. I can't remember a storm like this. Hillary left a long stream of washed-out highways and roads up and down Baja Peninsula in its wake Sunday. Some of the worst damage occurred in the coastal towns of Moolage and Santa Rosalina on the east side of the peninsula, where a man died Saturday after his family's vehicle was swept away by a swollen stream. Four other occupants of the vehicle were rescued. Power lines were toppled in many places, and emergency personnel were working to restore power and reach those cut off by the storm. The next story. Total of spent relief money unknown. Some local jurisdictions reporting few specifics by David A. Lieb and Kavish Harja, the Associated Press. Officials in Joplin, Missouri said they have big plans for $13.8 million of pandemic relief funds the tornado-ravaged city received under a two-year-old federal law. Yet the latest federal records show none of the money has been spent or even budgeted. In fact, about 6,300 cities and counties, nearly one in four nationwide, reported no expenditures as of this spring, according to the Associated Press analysis of data released by the U.S. Treasury Department. About 5,100 of those listed, no projects, either planned or underway. So what gives? Is the money not needed? Are cities just sitting on it? Local and federal officials told the AP in interviews that the publicly available data is misleading, pockmarked by differing interpretations over exactly what must be reported. Lagging in timeliness and failing to account for some preliminary planning, critics contend it's an indication of a flawed pandemic response. Federal officials estimate that governments have spending commitments for more than 80% of the funds, even if that's hard to tell from their reporting requirements. Joplin, for example, plans to spend its pandemic aid on housing projects, high-speed internet, streets, a bicycle park, public safety equipment, and more. The city council approved the plan last month, but it won't show up on federal reports until October. The city, which was devastated in 2011 by one of the deadliest tornadoes in U.S. history, took a deliberate approach with its pandemic aid to develop really transformational projects, said Leslie House, the city's finance director. 
Over the past couple of years, it's leveraged the pandemic aid to win millions of additional dollars of state grants. With the combined funds, it plans to relaunch an inspired post-tornado program that helps people make down payments on homes. The city also plans to spend millions of dollars to repair or demolish old houses. I think by the time 2026 rolls around, Joplin will be a better community. The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan passed in 2021 by Congress has was signed by President Joe Biden, contained $350 billion of flexible aid to states, territories, tribes, counties, cities, and towns. The Biden administration says the money was intended to provide both immediate aid amid a health crisis and long-term boost for communities. Governments must obligate that money for projects by the end of next year and spend it by the close of 2026. As of their April reports, more than 26,500 governments collectively have spent 43% of their funds and approved plans for sending 77% of the money, according to the AP analysis. The actual amount of spending commitments likely is well over 80% when accounting for lag times and different reporting approaches taken by local governments, said Gene Sperling, the White House American Rescue Plan coordinator. But Republicans and fiscal conservatives have questioned whether the spending is necessary, noting that most states rebounded quickly from initial tax plunge during the pandemic to post-large budget surpluses. Although the left claimed the $2 trillion bill was designed to fight COVID, they wasted hundreds of billions of Americans' hard-earned tax dollars on ridiculous things. U.S. Rep. Jason Smith, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, said in a statement, among other things, the money helped finance an upscale hotel in Florida, a minor league baseball stadium in New York, and prisons in Alabama, drawing outrage from some members of Congress. According to the AP's analysis, more than 6,000 local governments categorized their entire federal allotment as revenue replacement, often taking advantage of a Treasury rule that allows up to $10 million of assumed revenue loss without having to prove it. Though they can provide more details if they choose, governments categorizing all their federal aid as replacement revenue only have to report it as one project. But some didn't even do that. The Denver suburb of Lakewood, Colorado claimed the entire $21.6 million allotment as revenue replacement since it was dipped into reserves to pay police during the pandemic. It reported no projects. Yet the federal aid helped the city to construct sidewalks, replace computer software, upgrade the police radio systems, and make fire and safety improvements to a civic center, among other things, said Lakewood Chief Financial Officer Holly Bajorluk. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading of the Cape Cod Times. There are no obituaries listed today. In Nation and World Briefs, Pope Francis calls for peaceful end to the Niger crisis. Vatican City. Pope Francis expressed hope Sunday for a peaceful solution to a crisis following the military coup in the West African nation. The pontiff told the faithful in St. Peter's Square that he is following the events with concerns joining an appeal for peace in the country and stability in the Sahel region. He called on international community to find a peaceful solution as soon as possible for the good of all. Mutinous soldiers overthrew Niger's democratically elected president last month and have quickly entrenched themselves in power, rebuffing most dialogue efforts. President Mohamed Bazoum and his wife and son have been kept under house arrest in the capital. 
talks this weekend between the new military regime and a delegation from the West African Regional Bloc have reportedly yielded little progress. Gunmen kill at least 23 in an attack on a village in central Mali. Armed gunmen killed at least 23 people and wounded 12 in an attack on a village in central Mali, officials said Sunday. City Mohammed El Bachir, governor of the Bandagara region where the attack took place, said unidentified men killed dozens of people and set fire to several homes in the village. The assailants stayed in the village until 7 p.m. and burned down part of the village, smashed doors, and took away the villagers' cattle, said Lounge, president of the regional youth organization on Sunday. The attack has not been claimed. Communities across central and northern Mali have been in the grips of protracted armed violence since 2012. Extremist rebels were forced from power in the West African nation's northern cities the following year with the help of a French-led military operation, but they regrouped in the desert and began launching attacks on the Malayan army and its allies. Bangladesh police clashed with activists ahead of elections. Police in northeastern Bangladesh used batons and tear gas to disperse opposition activists amid a political dispute over who would oversee the next election, which is expected to be held in January, police and activists said Sunday. Around 300 people were injured in the clash on Saturday evening, including some with bullets, the country's leading Bengali-language daily newspaper reported, adding that police had opened fire on supporters of the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, which is led by former Prime Minister Zia. The United Nations of Bangladesh agency said as many as 150 people, including police officers, were hurt in the clashes, which occurred. G.K. Gauss, a local leader in Zia's party, said chaos broke out after thousands of party supporters began marching through the streets. Police confronted them and ordered them to stop. Philadelphia Mall evacuated after jewelry store robbery by four. Philadelphia. A smash-and-grab jewelry store robbery by four men using pepper spray and sledgehammer prompted the evacuation of a northeast Philadelphia mall over the weekend. Officers were called to the jewelry store in Philadelphia Mills Mall shortly after 7.30 p.m. Saturday, police said. Officials said four men had entered and used pepper spray on employees before breaking jewelry cases with a sledgehammer and taking various pieces of jewelry. Libya's central bank announces reunification after nearly a decade. Libya's central bank announced Sunday its reunification after being split for nearly a decade due to the country's long-running civil war that resulted in two rival administrations in the East and the West. The bank said in a terse statement that it has become a unified sovereign institution following a meeting in the capital. Tripoli between central bank governor and his deputy in the country's East, Ray Hill. The bank said the meeting crowned efforts by Libyan parties and marked the unification of the bank. They said they would continue their efforts to address repercussions of the years-long division, according to the statement. The next story. I probably have the FBI starting to look. Experts raid on a Kansas paper likely broke the law, but which one? by John Hanna and Heather Hollingsworth, the Associated Press, Topeka, Kansas. 
A Central Kansas police chief was not only on legally shaky ground when he ordered the raid of a weekly newspaper, experts said, but it may have been a criminal violation of civil rights, a former federal prosecutor added, saying, I'd probably have the FBI starting to look. Some legal experts believe the August 11th raid on the Marion County Records Office in the home of its publisher violated a federal privacy law that protects journalists from having their newsrooms searched. Some believe it violated a Kansas law that makes it more difficult to force reporters and editors to disclose their sources or unpublished material. Part of the debate centers around Marion Police Chief Gideon Cody's reasons for the raid. A warrant suggested that police were looking for evidence that the record staff broke state laws against identity theft and computer crimes while verifying information about a local restaurant owner. But the police also seized the computer tower and personal cell phone belongings to a reporter who had investigated Cody's background. The raid brought international attention to the newspaper and the small town of 1,900. Foisted to the center of the debate over press freedoms, recent events have exposed roiling divisions over local politics and the newspaper's aggressive coverage, but it also forced an intense spotlight on Cody in only his third month on the job. The investigation into whether the newspaper broke state laws continues. Now led by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, State Attorney General Chris Kobach has said he doesn't see the KBI's role as investigating the police conduct and the prompted some to question whether the federal government would get involved. Spokespersons for the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice declined to comment. Stephen McAllister, a U.S. attorney for Kansas during the former President Donald Trump's administration, said the raid opened Cody, the city, and others to lawsuits for alleged civil rights violations, and he added, we also have some exposure to federal criminal prosecution. I would be surprised if they are not looking at this, if they haven't already been asked by various interests to look at it, and I would think they would take it seriously. McAllister, a University of Kansas law professor who has also served as the state solicitor general, said of federal officials. Cody did not respond to an email seeking comment Friday as he had not responded to other emails, but he did defend the raid in a Facebook post afterward saying the federal law shielding journalists from newsroom searches makes an exception specifically for where, when there is reason to believe the journalist is taking part in the underlying wrongdoing. Police seized computers, personal cell phones, and a router from the newspaper. All items were released Wednesday to a computer forensics auditing firm hired by the newspaper's attorney after the local prosecutor concluded there wasn't enough evidence to justify their seizure. The firm is examining whether files were accessed or copied. The five-member Marion City Council was scheduled to have its first meeting since the raid Monday afternoon. The agenda says in red, Council will not comment on the ongoing criminal investigation at this meeting. The record is known for its aggressive coverage of local politics and its community of about 150 miles southwest of Kansas City, Missouri. It received an outpouring of support from other news organizations and media groups after the raid. An editor and publisher, Erica Meyer, said Friday that it had picked up 4,000 additional subscribers, enough to double the size of its press run, though many of the news subscriptions are digital. But the raids did have some backers in town. Jared Smith blames the newspaper's coverage for the demise of his wife's day spa business and believes the newspaper is too negative. I would love to see the paper go down, he said. And Carrie Newell, 
whose allegations that the newspaper violated her privacy have been cited as reasons for the raid. They do twist and contort misquote individuals in our community all of the time. Meyer rejects criticism of his newspaper's reporting and said critics are upset because it's attempting to hold local officials accountable and he blames the stress from the raid for the August 12th death of his 98-year-old mother, Joan Meyer, the paper's co-owner. Meyer said that after the mayor offered Cody the police chief's job in late April, the newspaper received anonymous tips on a variety of tales about why Cody gave up Kansas City's position paying $115,000 a year to take a job paying $60,000 a year. According to a sister paper, Meyer said the newspaper could not verify the tips to its satisfaction. Days before Cody was sworn in as chief on May 30th, Meyer said that he asked Cody directly about the tips he received, and Cody told him, if you print that, I will sue you. We get confidential things from people all of the time, and we check them out, said Doug. Doug Astonet, a retired Kansas Press Association executive director, and sometimes we know they're silly, but most of the times we get a tick, we check it out, and that's exactly what they're doing. Anstett said he believes that the state's shield law for journalists enacted in 2010 by the Republican-controlled legislature should have protected the paper. It allows law enforcement agencies to seek subpoenas to obtain confidential information from news organizations, but it requires them to show that they have been compelling interest and can't obtain it any other way. Former Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt, a Republican who helped write the shield law as a state senator, said the law doesn't contemplate law enforcement using a search warrant to get information without going to court to get a subpoena. Stem Cells from One Eye Show Promise for Healing by Laura Unger, the Associated Press. Phil Durst recalled clawing at his face after a chemical from a commercial dishwashing machine squirted into his eyes, causing the most indescribable pain I've ever felt. Ever, ever, ever. His left eye bore the brunt of the 2017 work accident, which stole his vision, left him unable to tolerate light, and triggered four to five cluster headaches a day. Then, he underwent an experimental procedure that aims to treat severe injuries in one eye with stem cells from the other. I went from completely blind with debilitating headaches and pondering if I could go on another day, like really thinking I can't do this anymore, to seeing well enough to drive and emerging from dark places literally and figuratively, he said, choking up. The 51-year-old from Homewood, Alabama, was one of four patients to get stem cell transplants as part of the first U.S. study to test the technique, which could someday help thousands. Though additional treatment is sometimes needed, experts say the stem cell transplant offers hope to people with few, if any, other options. Results in the early-stage research were published Friday in the journal Science Advances, and a larger study is now underway. The procedure is designed to treat limbal stem cell deficiency, a corneal disorder that can occur after chemical burns and other eye injuries. Patients without limbal cells, which are essential for replenishing and maintaining the cornea's outermost layer, can't undergo corneal transplants that are commonly used to improve vision. Dr. Ula Junekas, an ophthalmologist at Mass Eye and Ear in Boston, who was the principal investigator for the study, said the experimental technique involves taking a small biopsy of stem cells from the healthy eye, then expanding and growing them on a graph in a lab at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. A couple of weeks later, they spent, are sent back to be transplanted into the injured eye. 
Durst was the first patient to undergo the procedure. The great part of it is that we're using a patient's own tissue, not donor tissue the body might reject. She said the method is better than a different procedure that takes a very large piece of stem cells from a healthy eye for use on an injured eye but risks damaging the good eye. Both of Durst's eyes were hurt in the accident, which happened while the former chemical company manager was visiting a client having problems with the dishwashing machine. For six to eight months, his overall vision was so bad his wife or son had to lead him around, but his right eye was less injured than his left and could provide stem cells for the transplant. All patients in the study saw the cornea surfaces restored. Durst and other patients were then able to get transplants of artificial corneas, while two others reported much improved vision with the stem cell transplant alone. A fifth patient didn't get the procedure because the stem cells weren't able to adequately expand. At this point, Durst said the vision in his right eye is nearly perfect, but the vision in his left eye is blurry. He's scheduled for a different procedure in September to address that. Starbucks ordered to pay $2.7 million in lost earnings, the Associated Press, Camden, New Jersey. A judge has ordered Starbucks to pay an additional $2.7 million in lost wages and tax damages to a former regional manager who was earlier awarded more than $25 million after alleging she and other white employees were unfairly punished following the high-profile arrests of two black men at a store in 2018. In June, Shannon Phillips won $600,000 in com compensatory damages and $25 million in punitive damages after a jury in New Jersey found that race was a determinative factor in Phillips' firing in violation of federal and state anti-discrimination laws. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that U.S. District Judge Wednesday ordered Starbucks to pay Phillips another $2.73 million in past and future lost earnings and benefits, as well as a compensation for tax disadvantages due to the lump sum, according to court documents. The company opposed paying any amount, saying Phillips has not proven she couldn't have earned the same or more in the future. In April 2018, a Philadelphia store manager called police on two black men who were sitting in the coffee shop without ordering anything. Rashawn Nelson and Dante Robinson were later released without charges. Phillips, then regional manager of operations in Philadelphia, southern New Jersey, and elsewhere, was not involved with arrests. However, she said she was ordered to put a white manager, who also wasn't involved, on administrative leave for reasons she knew were false, according to her lawsuit. Phillips, 52, said she was fired less than a month later after objecting to the manager being placed on leave amid the uproar. The company's rationale for suspending the district manager, who was not responsible for the store where the arrest took place, was an allegation that black store managers were being paid less than white managers, according to the lawsuit. Phillips said that the argument made no sense since district managers had no input on employee salaries. The lawsuit alleged Starbucks was instead taking steps to punish white employees who worked in the area in an effort to convince the community that it had properly responded to the incident. Starbucks lawyers had alleged that Phillips was fired because the company needed stronger leadership in the aftermath of the arrests. Starbucks is seeking a new trial arguing that jurors were allowed to remain despite having expressed negative opinions about the company, that incorrect information and witness testimony poisoned the well, and that Phillips should not have been awarded double damages on both the state and federal allegations. Phillips' lawyers, meanwhile, also went to Starbucks ordered to pay $1.4 million in legal fees from 2018 through 2023. 
Video of the arrest prompted a national outcry, and the company later reached a settlement with both men for an undisclosed sum and an offer of free college education. The two men reached a deal with the city of Philadelphia for symbolic $1 each and promised that officials to set up $200,000 program for young entrepreneurs. The Philadelphia Police Department adopted a new policy on how to deal with people accused of trespassing on private property. In the box office, Blue Beetle ends four-week reign of Barbie. DC superhero flick swoops in for top spot in its opening weekend by Jake Coyle, the Associated Press, New York. The DC superhero film Blue Beetle led weekend ticket sales with a modest $25.4 million opening, according to studio estimates Sunday, dethroning Barbie from the top spot after a record run that left movie theaters colored pink for a month. The Barbie phenomenon is far from over Greta Gerwig's film, which earlier this week became the highest-grossing Warner Brothers release ever domestically, nearly managed to stay number one again with $21.5 million in its fifth weekend. It's up to $567.3 million in North America and an eye-popping $1.28 billion globally. The other half of Barbenheimer also continues to perform remarkably well for a movie so far into its run. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer took in $10.6 million in its fifth week with a $285.2 million domestic total. Oppenheimer now owns the distinction of being the biggest box office hit never to land number one at the weekend's box office. The previous record holder for that unlikely stat is in 2016's Sing, which grossed $270.3 million in the shadow of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and Hidden Figures. Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer has done even better overseas. Its global gross stands at an estimated $717.8 million through Sunday. Blue Beetle came in on the lower side of expectations and notched one of the lower debuts for a DC Comics movie. Though earlier planned as a streaming-only release, Warner Brothers elected to put Blue Beetle, the first DC movie, to a star Latino superhero into theaters in late summer, a typically quiet period at the box office. PA Musicians Union will strike if talks break down. The Associated Press, Saratoga Springs, New York. Musicians authorized a strike against the Philadelphia Orchestra if bargaining breaks down from an agreement to replace the four-year deal that expires on September 10th. Local 77 of the American Federation of Musicians said Sunday that 95% of voting members approved the strike authorization a day earlier, in addition to an agreement on compensation and benefits. The union said it wants 15 vacant positions filled. Base salary in 2022-23 was $152,256, including electronic media agreement wages, the union said. Each musician received a supplemental payment of $750 or $1,500 in each year of the contract. We are disappointed in the decision by AFM Local 77 and the musicians of the Philadelphia Orchestra to authorize a strike, management said in a statement. We will continue to negotiate in good faith toward a fiscally responsible agreement that ensures that musicians' economic and artistic future. The orchestra completed its summer residency at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center on Saturday. Music director Yannick Netsum. The music director wore a blue t-shirt supporting the union during an open rehearsal at Saratoga on August 11th. 
the 2023-24 season at Philadelphia's Verizon Hall at the Kummel Cultural Campus is scheduled to open September 28th, conducting a program that includes cellist Yo-Yo Ma. The orchestra filed for bankruptcy in 2011 and emerged a year later. Musicians struck on September 30th, 2016, causing a cancellation of that season's opening night, then announced an agreement two days later. The orchestra last month canceled a four-concert California tour with principal guest conductor Natalie Strutzman scheduled for March and was replaced by Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, whose music director is Stutzman. In the Ask Carolyn section. Dear Carolyn, my 40th birthday is coming up and I've always wanted to be a homeowner by 40. Of course, I have always imagined being happily married long before that and buying the house together. That hasn't happened. I don't want to put it off longer. I'm in a good position now and the market near me is good, but I feel deeply unsettled by the idea of buying a house now alone with space for me and no one else, almost like I'm conceding that I'm not going to find someone to spend my life with. Is that completely dumb? How do I get excited about buying a house alone? Dear Unsettled, Is that such a terrible thing to concede? I suppose if you frame it as, I'm not going to find someone to spend my life with, and you want that, then sure, it will feel terrible. But there are more accurate labels. You've done a pretty common and normal thing by having a set of goals and expectations for your life. But I think everyone who does that reaches a point where goals and expectations become untenable because they're not entirely up to you. It's always conceding when things just don't work out the way we envision them for any one of a million typical reasons. You can get everything you expected but realize it doesn't feel the way you thought it would. You can get nothing you expected and love where you are. You can't get half the things, be okay with that and have half of those unravel and end up on some side journey that bears no resemblance to anything you had in mind. You can hit goals in succession and wake up in the middle of it with an epiphany that you charted your life at 18 and you barely resemble that person anymore. Some marriages suck. Being house poor can limit your funds for the true joys of life that you take for granted. It's possible your problem isn't that you haven't met your goals, it's that you haven't revised them as you've grown and evolved. This could also be too thinky for you right now. Maybe all you need is to see some homes and picture yourself in them and fall in love with the idea of your very own space. It's pure cheese, but Sleeping with the Enemy 1991 Julia Roberts Big Hair has a scene that makes one's all-alone home feel like the most gut-level satisfying thing on earth. Ignore that it's a rental. I've wept through it. I know I can't feel your feelings for you, but from where I sit, buying your very own home as part of a living fully is the opposite of conceding. Maybe just start touring homes to see if you warm to them. Reader's thoughts? I bought a house alone because I wanted a house, not because I had a goal of being a homeowner. Are you sure you actually want one? Do you like your current living situation? What guarantee do you have that you'll ever get married? Live your life. And we end our reading today with Today in History. Today is Monday, August 21st, the 233rd day of 2023. There are 132 days left in the year. On this date in 1831, Nat Turner launched a violent slave rebellion in Virginia, resulting in the deaths of at least 55 white people. Scores of black people were killed in retribution in the aftermath of the rebellion, and Turner was later executed. 
1858, the first of seven debates took place between Illinois senatorial contenders Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. In 1911, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre Museum in Paris. It was recovered two years later in Italy. In 1944, the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union and China opened talks at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington that helped pave the way for establishment of the United Nations. In 1959, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed an executive order making Hawaii the 50th state. In 1991, the hardline coup against Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev collapsed in the face of a popular uprising led by Russian Federation President Boris N. Yeltsin. In 1992, an 11-day siege began at the cap of the white separatist Randy Weaver in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, as government agents tried to arrest Weaver for failing to appear in court on charges of selling two illegal sawed-off shotguns on the first day of the siege. Weaver's teenage son Samuel and Deputy U.S. Marshal William Deegan were killed. In 1993, in a serious setback for NASA, engineers lost contact with the Mars Observer spacecraft as it was about to reach the Red Planet on a $980 million mission. In 2010, Iranian and Russian engineers began loading fuel into Iran's first nuclear power plant, which Moscow promised to safeguard to prevent material at the site from being used in any potential weapons production. And in your horoscope, Aries. An authority figure can really get your goat today. Challenged by power dynamics, hold strong under the Libra moon. Taurus. Prepare for tension at the workplace. Varying POVs can clash while people vie for control. The Libra moon encourages diplomacy. Gemini. Light pleasures may take an intense turn. An intimate moment may catch you off guard under the Libra moon. Cancer. Relationships stirring you up? Emotional challenges are on the scene? The Libra moon is testing your security levels. Leo. Unsavory news may come your way today. Someone rocking your boat? The Libra Moon recommends reacting gracefully. Virgo. Matters of the heart may be crunchy. The Libra Moon can expose confidence issues in getting what you desire most. Libra. An emotional purge may be necessary. Ready to get it all out? Scorpio. Your challenge to mentally move on today. The Libra Moon makes a case for why it's best to let go. Sagittarius. The Libra moon reflects what you wish for in life. A healthy relationship with money can help you get there. Capricorn, what you try to control controls you. Is this tight grasp affecting your success? Aquarius, what's hidden may be affecting your life more than you think. Challenge these limited subconscious beliefs. Pisces, your emotional strength may be challenged under today's Libra moon. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Monday, August 21st, 2023 of the Cape Cod Times. Have a great day.